0: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code SMARTS. That's offer code S-M-A-R-T-S Hey, everybody. It is Smart People Podcast. Welcome. This is Chris Stemp. And this is John Rojas. We have, I would say, uh, do we say this too much? I don't know. It's a fantastic interview. I don't care how many times we say it. Well, here's a here's the proof is in the pudding. Uh, he was on the Ask Me Anything on Reddit. And it was it the most commented all time? It's one
1: of the most popular behind somebody called President Barack Obama. Oh, yeah. okay. But it's up there. So anyways, John, why don't you tell them who we interview this week? This week, we're talking to retired Colonel Peter Mansoor. He's currently a professor of military history at The Ohio State University. The Ohio State University. Oh, what are we doing? The as,
0: pre-reads at an NFL game? <laughs> no,
1: he You know, he just wanted to make sure that I got that in there. Yeah. But Professor Mansoor served as executive officer to General David Petraeus during the surge in Iraq. And his most recent book is... Surge,
0: My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. I mean, I can't say how amazing it was that he gave us so much of his time. It was an hour, basically, probably edited down a little bit. But with a lot of really useful information, we're going to just turn it over and let him do the talking this time. But uh, we recommend if you like the interview, check out his book. We'll link to it at smartpeoplepodcast.com and let us know what you think. Hope you uh, hope you enjoy it. Well, Colonel Mansoor, again, thank you so much for being on the show. First, you know, John and I really did want to say thank you for your service. It's something that is obviously important to our security and our independence, and we really do appreciate it. As you know, we want to dive into so many different things that you. Embody, which is having worked with General Petraeus and having served our country, you've written a couple books recently, Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War, and being a professor at um, Ohio State University dealing with military history. So there's a lot going on there. I thought we would first kind of turn it over to you who can best describe what you've done and how you've gotten to where you are and the things that really stick out in your mind as a big part of your history.
2: Well, thank you, uh, first for, uh, the kind words. I appreciate it. As do all veterans. Um, I grew up, I was born in New Orleans, Minnesota, but grew up in Sacramento, California, and apparently watched too many John Wayne movies when I was a kid <laughs> and decided to, uh, to pursue a military career. And what better place to do that than West Point? Um, I also came from what could charitably be called a lower middle class family, a a single parent, mother, school teacher raising five kids. And so if I was going to get an education, I was going to have to figure out a way for someone else to pay for it. So West Point was sort of a natural uh, place for me to go. And, you know, I I wrote in my first uh, memoir, Baghdad at Sunrise, a brigade commander's war in Iraq, that I was raised in Sacramento, but I grew up at West Point. Mm. And it's really true. Um, after, you know, a difficult first year, I think everyone has a difficult first year. I really grew to love the place and the academics, the, the physical challenges, and of course, the military leadership training. After graduation in 1982, I, I went on to serve for 26 years in the United States Army, uh, three overseas um, uh, operations a uh, four-month stint in Kuwait in 1999, Operation Desert Spring, and two combat tours in the Iraq War, one in 2003-2004 as a brigade commander in the 1st Armored Division, serving in Baghdad and Karbala. And then uh, finally my service as General Petraeus' executive officer during the surge of 2007 and 2008. And, And that war... Uh, really, I think, uh, defined um, my career and defined the end of my career at any rate. Earlier, uh, as a captain, I had seen uh, a real high point. I was in Germany, assigned uh, on the border uh, with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, and I saw the Iron Curtain come down and watched the Germans reunify, and it was really a wonderful event. Uh, And then at the tail end of the career, I ended up uh, serving in a very difficult uh, war with a a very indeterminate uh, outcome and uh, it got me uh, obviously uh, thinking hard about warfare and I had already worked to uh, earn a PhD at the Ohio State University. The Army had sent me back in the early 90s for uh, studies en route to West Point to teach military history for a couple of years. But once I finished that tour, I I continued to be engaged in in writing military history. I wrote an award winning book, uh, The GI Offensive in Europe, uh, The Triumph of American Infantry Divisions, 1941 to 1945, which was published in 1999 by the University Press of Kansas, won the Society for Military History Book of the Year Award in 2000. Uh, And then, based on my two tours in Iraq, I ended up writing. Uh, two books on the Iraq war, the first one about my experience as a brigade commander, and then the most recent one uh, regarding the surge. And, and you know, I wasn't really going to write the book on the surge uh, right away. I was going to wait, you know, maybe a decade, let the dust settle, let the archives open up. But I was really uh, disenchanted uh, with the public discourse uh, regarding the Iraq war. A lot of it was colored by politics, but a lot of it was just colored by misinformation. And I thought, um, you know, I was at a a conference in the summer of 2010, and it was a conference of so-called counterinsurgency experts, and they really were, Um, and we were talking about what to do in Afghanistan, but invariably the conversation went back to what had happened in Iraq during the surge, and uh, it it was like the story of the blind man uh, describing an elephant. One feels the trunk and says it's (laughs) like a snake, and the other feels the leg and says, it's no, it's more like a tree trunk. And, you know, another feels the tail and said, no, it's more like an eel. And, you know, they all had pieces of the story, but none of them had a holistic uh, vision of what the surge actually was and what it accomplished. And I said, boy, if, if this is what the experts think, what must the American people think? Right. <laughs> right. And I decided at that point, right then and there, to put aside the research I was conducting on the U.S. Uh, Army in the Pacific War and uh, and to write a book on the surge. And three years later, uh, here it is. You
1: know, I think that's a very valid point about most of America not knowing what the war was about and what the surge was about, because I have a cousin that's right now active in the Marines. Uh, he's an officer. And he posted a news article about when, I guess, al-Qaeda-linked forces just retook over Fallujah. And he was saying that this is very important to me and my brothers who fought this fight, and most of America doesn't understand why we were there, that type of thing. Why do you think that there's such this disconnect of people that truly don't understand why the surge happened, why the Iraq War happened, all those things? I know it's a long question, but I was hoping to get your insight on that since you were there.
2: Right. I I think there's a couple different questions uh, embedded in there. One is, why did the Iraq war happen? And uh, I think there's still more history to be written on on the motivations for going to war. I wasn't a a fan of of the decision to invade. Uh, Of course, I wasn't in a position to do anything about it. I was at the Army War College at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in our student debates, anyway, I, I argued that our current strategy of dual containment against Iraq and Iran was working. And there was no reason to risk rolling the iron dice and risking the very uncertain outcomes of a war uh, for strategic goals that, to me, seemed fairly nebulous. And uh, unfortunately, uh, that turned out to be the case. The other question imbe- embedded there is why, did we, uh, why was the surge strategy, um, why did the Bush administration decide to execute the surge, implement the surge, and what did it accomplish and that on that uh, question, I think I'm on much more solid ground, having been there at ground zero with the Council of Colonels that helped the Joint Chiefs rethink the strategy for the Iraq War and having seen the various influences um, that helped create the surge, which I write about in Chapter 2 of my book. And then, uh, of course, being over in Iraq with General Petraeus for 15 months, watching the surge unfold and, and helping to shape its outcome. Uh, one of the things I was able to do in writing the book uh, was gain access to the archive that we had assembled for General Petraeus. Um, I requested the declassification of his, uh, his weekly reports to the Secretary of Defense, and that, that request was granted. And so they were cleansed of, uh, of uh, classified information the government didn't want released yet. And then um, I was given access to the rest, and that helped me uh, write the book and use primary sources to write the book. So it wasn't just my recollections, it was my recollections, my notes, uh, along with these uh, reports and other primary source documents. So I believe truly that the outcome, the book Surge, is the best history of the Iraq War yet to be written. Now, will will it stand the test of time? I think so, but I think... There is going to be other books that eventually superseded as more information comes out. But to answer your, your buddy's question, why did, we, why did we sacrifice? You know, the Iraq, Iraq was dissolving in 2006. And it was dissolving in such a way that there was going to be a massive humanitarian crisis, uh, huge movements of populations across the border. There already were uh, a couple million refugees in Syria and Jordan. And Iraq would have become a real cockpit for competing uh, groups, uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, Iraqi, um, Iraqi sub- Iranian-supported militias in Iraq, uh, the Kurdish Peshmerga, and so forth. And I think what the surge did was gave the Iraqis, it reduced the level of ethno-sectarian violence by 90% during the 18 months of the surge, and it gave the Iraqis uh, the opportunity to move forward politically uh, the type of politics that use words and ballots to uh, hmm. to adjudicate the the division of power and resources, and not bombs and bullets. And I'm not sure that Iraq is uh, at a point yet where it's going to to disintegrate the way it way it was in 2006. There's there's more history to be written here. I'm deeply disappointed by what's happening on the ground, but I think those U.S. service mem- members who served during the surge can and served at other points in the Iraq war can hold their heads high and know that they did um, their country. You know, they gave the best service that they could uh, given the very difficult uh, job they were given.
1: I do have to clarify my cousin that is in the Marines. He posted that because he said exactly what you said, where we knew why we were there and what we did. And we want to be able to look back on that and have it be positive as opposed to, you know, now it's been like re overtaken or whatever, the, the situation is, and he posed the question of, do Americans really know why why we we're there? So it, it's really interesting to hear you clarify, you know, why we were there. That that's very important for people to know, and it's it's also really interesting.
2: Well, I think people will always go back to the decision to go to war, which you know I write in Surge was ill conceived and uh, poorly executed um, after the initial invasion, with very little uh, you know, a, a poorly conceived plan for what to, how to knit this, uh, this country and society and the government back together. Once we collapse the regime, the, um, you know, the, the Bush administration decision to, to launch a preventative war against a country that didn't pose an immediate threat. Uh, I really think, uh, the American people need to look long and hard at, at that, uh, that decision—it's not a road that we should travel down lightly. War is a very serious business, right. and it should be a last resort, and not uh, not some sort of uh, first resort. And it seemed to be the military instrument of power seemed to be in the Bush administration a first resort rather than uh, something that they were reluctant to engage in. Having said that, once we were there, you know, it was important that we finish the war as best we could. As, as David Kilcullen once uh, famously said, just because you get into a war stupidly doesn't mean you have to leave it stupidly.
0: It's a very good point. Yeah, it really is. And it brings up so many questions that I have. I mean, John and I, I remember, as most people do, the morning of September 11th, 2001, uh, we were roommates at freshman in college. He woke me up. And I, I mean, that feeling you carry with you of anger and rage and revenge it was it was so prevalent amongst you know at that time I'm 18 years old a lot of the the age of when people enlist in the armed forces and people were were asking for something to be done people wanted to see some military strength and power and i was wondering did we use that you know September 11th as a in your opinion as a reason to to go to war, and then did we go to war for reasons such as maybe oil or things that, you know, these people oftentimes bring up, and I would love to get your opinion given your previous experience.
2: I think it was important that uh, we took the war to al-Qaeda. I don't think that that very horrific terrorist attack on the United States could go unchallenged. And when the government of Afghanistan uh, refused to give up the leaders of al Qaeda to us to stand trial, I don't think we had any choice but to uh, invade Afghanistan. Um, But we took our eye off the ball. The the purpose of invading Afghanistan was to punish al Qaeda. And we let al Qaeda escape at Tora Bora, the Battle Mm -hmm. of Tora Bora in November 2011, when we, for reasons that are beyond me, relied on Afghan militia to attack the Al-Qaeda fighters rather than committing U.S. troops to to the goal um, for which the war was being fought. And having committed that error, uh, we uh, compounded it by uh, taking a left turn into uh, Iraq uh, for very nebulous strategic reasons. Now, you know, I I hear the people who say we're doing it for oil and so forth, but I, I, with all due respect, disagree with them. Mm Um, in looking at the state of the United States, the, the psyche of the country after 20, after 2001, after September 11th, uh, you know, there was a lot of fear. Fear and anger uh, were the prevalent emotions. And so uh, I write uh, about this in Baghdad at Sunrise in, in the very first chapter, in fact, that uh, despite the chance of the people uh, who claimed no blood for oil, it was fear that drove the United States into Iraq. It was fear of uh, the unknown, of the potential for Saddam Hussein to have weapons of mass destruction, for the potential for him to give them to a terrorist group to have them used against the United States. Uh, we we were looking for dragons to slay, and, um, and there were lots of potential targets. And this is where I think you needed a... a, a a leader, a president who um, was perhaps a a little bit more strategically versed and and a little bit calmer emotionally, who could sit back and go, do we really need to invade Iraq uh, to protect the United States? Now, the answer President Bush came up with was yes. Uh, But I think clearly in retrospect, um, there should have been more discussion. And the other thing um, I would like to point out, is the world was completely united uh, behind the United States after September 11th, t- 2001. And how did we get to a situation from, which, from where the, the world was completely united behind the United States to one a decade or more later, where in many countries were reviled as the greatest threat to world peace?
0: That is such a great point. That is, I mean, I literally have goosebumps. That is, it's such a great point. People were, there was an outpour of, you know, sympathy for what happened to us. And we turned into the villains.
2: Right. And that gave us a a degree of soft power that you cannot, it's hard to measure. Mm -hmm. But if I were the president, I would have done everything I could have to have maintained uh, that unanimity among the world community. Because it is true power sure and instead he uh, i think he he decided to rely on on the the harder more tangible power of u s military forces and that's good in certain circumstances you know when you're refighting the battle of Normandy sure. uh, but it's not good in other circumstances and other than uh, invading afghanistan to, to destroy al-qaeda I'm not sure that we should have Uh, decided that the military was our first resort uh, in waging the the war against al-Qaeda.
0: Keeping along those lines, but moving on again to really want to talk about your book, Surge, because... You know, I I can read on Wikipedia. I can read your book. I, there's a lot of places I can kind of learn about the surge, and I know a little bit. Hopefully, you
2: buy the book and then read it. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean. You know what I mean. And
0: I, I do. I actually I have I haven't uh, read the whole thing, but I have read a good amount, and I have to say it's it's fantastic. And it is I think is close to a true account of a lot of things that we're going to get. So we'll link to it on the website and all that. We don't talk to authors that we don't really believe in what they do what they do and what they put out there, but. Could you kind of give us, in, in your own words, this isn't the written word, this is through your voice and emotion, uh, what the surge was and what it was intended to achieve?
2: Right. So the, the surge was a holistic strategy that was intended to reduce the levels of ethno-sectarian violence in Iraq in order to give Iraqi elites, the political community, the, the space the political space in which to come to some sort of resolution and create a way ahead for Iraq that didn't include massive violence. <clears throat> the, um, the surge itself was much more than the provision of additional troops to Iraq, although it was that, five U.S. Army brigades, two Marine battalions, and and um, uh, five to ten thousand troops uh, in other sorts of units like military police and aviation and so forth. So there was a good chunk of additional troops supplied, but more importantly was the way those troops were, were going to be used in accordance with a new counterinsurgency strategy promulgated in Field Manual 3 24, Counterinsurgency, which was published in December 2006, two months before the surge began. And um, General Petraeus was the guiding force behind that, uh, that new counterinsurgency strategy. I had a, a small role in helping to edit the final version, but there were a lot of, a lot of fingerprints on, on that strategy, or the, uh, the field manual, rather. And um, what the field manual said and what we tried to do during the surge was get out of the big bases. We had uh, to backtrack just a little bit, after 2003 and and the beginning of 2004, the thinking among the senior leaders of the United States Army, primarily General John Abizade, head of U.S. Central Command, was that U.S. forces were a virus that had infected Iraqi society, and we were the problem. If we would just get out of Iraqi uh, cities and out of the urban areas, the violence would die down. And it was, uh, unfortunately a vision that was fundamentally flawed. In fact, we weren't the problem. Um, And when we withdrew from the Iraqi cities and consolidated into the big bases, it allowed um, other forces, insurgents, terrorists, uh, Shia militias, to take over the neighborhoods and start to terrorize the people. And the situation began to spiral downhill pretty dramatically from that point on. What we did during the surge is we reversed that decision, and we decided, you know, you cannot commute to war, you cannot commute to the fight. So no matter how many patrols you send out of these large bases on a daily basis, they are not enduring, the troops don't live in the neighborhood. And so we kicked the troops off of the big bases, and they positioned themselves out into the urban areas, and joined with Iraqi forces, which were also out in these uh, smaller outposts, joint security stations, combat outposts, patrol bases, and they provided a more enduring presence from which uh, you could do foot patrols, not necessarily just mounted patrols, um, which you could um, talk to the Iraqi people, secure them uh, better. And it really was an enormous uh, contribution in the, the many, many uh, reasons for the reduction in ethno-sectarian violence during the surge. By way of comparison, we had four big bases in Baghdad before the surge, and after the surge, there were 72 of these smaller uh, joint security stations, combat outposts, and, and, um, and patrol bases. Wow. Um, on top of that, um, you know, there were some things at work that were not part of the surge strategy, but which became part of the surge strategy. The most important of these was the tribal awakening in Al-Anbar province which began in the summer of 2006 um, and which General Petraeus knew about but learned about in a big way once he took over command of multinational force Iraq and took a trip uh, within the first week out to Ramadi to see what was happening out there. And what he learned was, uh, was astonishing that these Tribes had allied themselves with American forces to fight al-Qaeda. And he decided right then and there that we needed to support the awakening with all the assets that we could muster and try to, to spread the awakening into other areas of Iraq. And that, that led not only to the spread of the awakening, but eventually to the creation of the Sons of Iraq, uh, an armed neighborhood watch type organization that eventually numbered more than a hundred thousand young men, and these young men were able to secure their own communities because they lived there. They lived in, in the places they were securing, and uh, became a real asset to to the counterinsurgency effort in uh, in Iraq during the surge. Um, what people don't know is that you know they there's. Some commentators who say, well, the the awakening occurred before the surge and it was going to solve things anyway, and therefore the surge wasn't necessary. And that absolutely is false. Uh, The awakening would probably have been limited to the confines of Ramadi or at most Al-Anbar province had not General Petraeus given it a a huge push and a boost by uh, basically ordering multinational forces Iraq to support it. Uh, and uh, and he supported the creation of the Sons of Iraq and then put resources behind that in terms of uh, of providing uh, the Sons of Iraq a a living wage. Um, There are other people who say, well, all you did was you bought bought off the insurgents by giving them money, And, and that's incorrect too because the Sons of Iraq came over to our side first and were unpaid volunteers until we decided that we needed to pay them to prevent them from... Uh, perhaps backsliding due to their inability to feed their families. That's another thing I write about. Um, There were nation-building aspects to the surge, um, trying to improve the essential services provided to the um, Iraqi people, the provision of more electrical power, better water, uh, spraying of date palms to improve agriculture, um, all sorts of uh, efforts to get the Iraqi economy energized, restore the, the large businesses, the state-owned enterprises. Um, and so there were, there were those aspects as well. Um, finally, the Iraqis surged right along with us. Their, their forces grew by more than 100,000 troops during the surge, and increasingly they were better uh, armed and better trained as our advisory effort took hold. So when you talk about the surge, you've got to go way beyond, uh, well, it was just the provision of, you know, 30,000 more troops, and how could that have made a difference? It must have been other things. It was a, a much more broadly based holistic effort that, um, that uh, served as a catalyst to allow all sorts of uh, things that were happening in Iraq at the time, primarily the awakening, to take hold
1: This might be a terrible thing to admit, but I honestly just learned more about the war in the last 10 minutes of this discussion than the last 12, 13 years that it's been going on.
2: Now you know why I wrote the book. Yeah, I, I
1: cannot wait to just dive in and do nothing else but read your book. Thanks to our sponsors for making this show possible. This week's episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all in one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code SMARTS. That's offer code S M A R T
0: S. I got to say, speaking from experience, Squarespace is beautiful, it's easy. And it's convenient. I've done it, and I don't even know how to build websites. Squarespace is constantly improving their platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They have over 20 highly customizable templates for you to choose from. And as I mentioned, it's incredibly easy to use. But if you want help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
1: It starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience so you don't have to worry about what your site looks like on phones and tablets. You know it will
0: look beautiful. Squarespace takes care of that for you. Now here comes the most important part. Start with a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SMARTS. S M A R T S to get 10% off and to show your support for our podcast. I think we can all agree glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. That's where Warby Parker comes in. Their prescription glasses start at $95 including prescription lenses and all glasses include anti-reflective and anti-glare coating. There's no additional cost. Warby Parker makes
1: buying glasses online easy and risk free. They have an awesome home try-on program that allows you to have five pairs of glasses shipped directly to your door. You can keep these frames for five days, select your favorite pair, and ship them back using a prepaid return shipping label with no obligation to purchase.
0: Obviously, glasses are viewed as a fashion accessory. Just like a bag, a shoe, or a necktie, you want something that looks good, fits you, and does the job. And at $95, you get boutique-quality, classically-crafted eyewear at a revolutionary price point. So go to warbyparker.com slash smartpeople to choose your five free home try-on frames. By visiting warbyparker.com slash smartpeople, you will get free three-day shipping. Send the frames back, choose your favorite pair, and order. Don't forget, you'll be contributing to a charitable
1: cause – Buy a pair, give a pair. For every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. Enjoy the rest of the show. I do have a quick question. Now, the strategy of the surge, of getting out of the big bases and, you know, moving closer to the urban areas, and then the same thing with the Sons of Iraq, where they're actually patrolling the neighborhoods. Was this strategy based off of, like, a model that's happened previously in history in any other war, Or was this something new that came up where it was, you know, we need to get away from this base occupying thing and more integrated with the people?
2: Well, there's a huge debate among the counterinsurgency community about that question, Uh, because the folks who wrote FM 3-24 viewed uh, Malaya, the British counterinsurgency strategy in Malaya as, as sort of a model, and the writings of David Galula a French uh, military officer who wrote a book on counterinsurgency warfare uh, in the early sixties. And they, they sort of took the, the history and and the doctrine partly from these writings and and these examples. And Galula says that it's important to, to protect the population, to get out, uh, eventually um, organize the population politically uh, that Counterinsurgency is a struggle between a government that uh, perhaps is weak and in need of reform and insurgents who offer a different uh, vision for governing, and then a, um, a, a large neutral group of people in the middle who can be swayed one way or the other based on uh, military, diplomatic, economic, political actions of the counterinsurgents and the insurgents. Um that's one way of looking at it. The, the people who, who don't uh, agree with that say, no, Iraq was different. It was a sectarian conflict. There was never a big amorphous middle willing to be swayed one way or, to, or the other. Um, in my experience, um, the Iraqi people, after several years of, of war, and now in, when the surge began in 2007, we were almost four years into the conflict, they wanted security.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: uh they were tired of being preyed upon by uh sunni terrorists by shia militias by their own security forces in some cases uh they were they were tired of going without essential services and most of them uh and i'm talking here particularly about baghdad because baghdad was the heart uh, uh, and is the heart of iraq politically economically and and if you control baghdad you you pretty much um have a a leg up on controlling uh, the rest of the country. The people in Baghdad, you know, they were willing to side with with whoever could provide them security. And what the surge did was, uh, well, before the surge, the um, Shia militia were basically saying, well, we're your best bet for security, especially among the Shia people of Baghdad. And uh, the way we'll secure you is, is we'll ethnically, we'll sectarian cleanse Baghdad of all its Sunni inhabitants. The, Shia, the Sunnis, on the other hand, they turned to their defenders, protectors of last resort, and that was al-Qaeda and the insurgency, who said, um, you know, the, the Shia militias are preying on you. Uh, the Americans aren't protecting you. If you want to be protected, we're your defenders, and so you have to support us. What the surge did is provided a different model for security. It said, nope, uh, the Shia militias and the Sunni terrorists and insurgents are just that. They are uh, um, they're, they're not uh, your defenders. They're out for their own purposes. <clears throat> and, uh, and the best defenders are the Iraqi security forces and the uh, coalition forces, primarily in Baghdad, American forces, who uh, are now out among you, securing you, and uh, we will rid you of these uh, these groups that are preying on you. Uh, the Shia militias, in many cases, were nothing more than protection rackets, um, fleecing merchants for for protection money, and the uh, Al Qaeda was certainly preying on the local community, both for resources, for women, um, for for shelter and for a lot of other things as well and terrorizing the population to boot. So, um, it was a different vision of, of how to, uh, fight a counterinsurgency war, um, based partly on, um, what I, what some people have called the classical era of counterinsurgency, the wars in Malaya and Algeria, uh, to a lesser extent in Vietnam, although there's a lot of other issues at, at stake in Vietnam. It was a hybrid conflict. Um, and, uh, and in part, it was its own animal. and might be studied in the future for, for its own contributions to the history of counterinsurgency. You know, the Iraq War was um, partly counterinsurgency. It was partly counterterrorism. Uh, it was partly uh, a battle against organized crime. Uh, and it was part a, partly a nation building effort. So there were there was a lot of things going on in Iraq, and um, to be successful, you had to handle them all at simultaneously. And I, I think until the surge, we didn't have a holistic strategy to do that.
0: That's a great explanation. I really appreciate the depth that you're willing to and able to explain it to us. And we would be doing us all a disservice if we didn't talk about your position as executive officer to General David Petraeus, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that position entails and General Petraeus is often lauded as one of the best wartime leaders in history. So I was wondering your take on how he operated and uh, what he achieved.
2: General Petraeus is a a very intelligent, um, dynamic Energetic leader, and uh, you have to be on your toes twenty four seven to keep up with him. <laughs> uh, he he has a, a capacity for work unlike anyone I have ever seen in my life. As his executive officer, I was his. Uh, I was basically the chief of staff of his personal staff. <clears throat> I was at his side uh, pretty much twenty four seven. I slept in a bedroom right next to his. When whenever he traveled. Uh, He traveled with the chief of his initiatives group, uh, Colonel Bill Rapp, uh, and I stayed behind in the office uh, to, quote, keep the trains running on time, unquote. (laughs) Uh, So whenever, you know, if he had something he needed to get done, he'd call back or Bill would call me and write me an email or whatnot. And then I would uh, discuss with the multinational force Iraq chief of staff or or any of the other uh, senior staff officers. You know, General Petraeus' requests, or I'd act as a go-between between the, the staff and him in, certain, in many cases, because you know, generals use their executive officers differently. Some of them are, are just gatekeepers who handle the calendar and, and usher people into the office, and I did that. Uh, but others uh, have a more intimate role. Uh, in, in the case of me and General Petraeus, I became a strategic confidant as well. And on uh, the rare occasions we were alone, I would be able to give him um, bursts of my thinking um, on some issue, and um, it would get him to thinking. Often it would be things that perhaps he wasn't thinking about or hadn't thought about it in a certain way, and it would get him to thinking. And you could see in subsequent days in his uh, dealings with with the staff, some of, my, some of those ideas come out as his own, which is fine. I mean, it, it, uh, he needed to internalize them uh, to, uh, to really make them his own. Uh, so I had that, um, that function as well. Uh, nothing went on the calendar without um, my say-so. And the first thing I did is we, we got the, um, the battle rhythm, the calendar from the previous uh, staff, General Casey's staff and I looked at it and I, I was like, "Wow, this is really incredibly difficult." Because they were fourteen-hour, sixteen-hour days, packed end to end with meetings and travel. And I asked General Price, "You really want to do this?" And he goes, "Yeah, we're going to do exactly what they did in the uh, previous uh, regime, and then we'll, you know we'll adjust." Well, two weeks into it, we were getting—I was getting about four hours of sleep a night. He was getting maybe five. Um, and, and I looked at him and I said, you know, six months from now, we're both going to be dead. You're going to be, you're going to be dead on your feet and I'm going to be dead of a heart attack. Right. Um, so please allow me to look at the battle rhythm. So he did. And, uh, I took a meat cleaver to it and I uh, cut out all sorts of meetings that we discovered we didn't need, um, consolidated other things. Anyway, I, I, I garnered about 14 hours a week out of that, out of that uh, process. And that's pretty huge. That's a couple hours a day. So now my sleep went up to, you know, more like six or seven hours. And this <laughs> went up to, you know, seven to eight. <clears throat> and uh, that was more manageable. Um, and then uh, I carved out, uh, there was no time to do physical training. So I carved out a Tuesday afternoon and a Friday morning for him to, to conduct physical training. And, and, you know, he's a very physical person. He runs like a gazelle. And so uh, giving him the opportunity to uh, conduct physical training was, you, you just could see his, his uh, mind rejuvenate after a good run. Um, and then uh, the most surprising thing came uh, at the end of the first month we were there, it was Saturday. And in the morning uh, update to him, the battlefield update and assessment or BUA, the chief of staff said, um, uh, well, as you know, general Petraeus tomorrow is, uh, uh, the no Bua Sunday. <laughs> he looked at me and I looked at him. I had no idea what that <laughs> was. And, uh, the previous, you know, XO hadn't filled me in. And he was like, okay, what's that? And, and he said, well, once a month, at last Sunday of every month, we give the staff a, a half day off. We begin work at noon and general Petraeus said, okay, um, fine just make sure i have the bua slides at my, in my computer when i wake up and so that was fine and then he scheduled a run so that was now the third right. day that week he could run and and he could do a really long run because he had the whole morning to do it if he wanted to you know he didn't you know he took maybe an hour but um uh it gave the staff a chance to rest so i went to the chief of staff after that after you know that nice blissful half day off and and i said um you know, let's try to convince him to do it every other week. Ah, there you go. <laughs> and so we went in and we laid our hearts on the table. And General Petraeus grumbled, but he said, okay, we'll do it every other week. And wow. secretly, I think he realized it was really good for him as well sure. in terms of, uh, you know, getting to do more more PT and clearing his mind. And he could use the morning to sit and reflect, which senior leaders don't often get to do. Mm-hmm. With, you know, they get this crush of meeting after meeting after meeting. And they never get to think, and that gave him a morning actually to do that, which was really important. Um, and then after a month of, of that, uh, it wasn't wasn't more than a couple of weeks later. I went to the chief of staff and I said, "Let's try to convince him to do it every week." <laughs> and we went in talk to him again. And, you know, he grumbled and, you know, and he said, okay, but you know, if, if I find the staff, uh, isn't doing their job, I'm going to go back to doing boos on Sunday. And, right. you know, he, he kind of, uh, gave us a, a tough time, but he, he agreed to do it. Wow. And, uh, and it turned out to be really a godsend for everyone. Um, it, it, it there was no such thing as sleep deprivation after that. Cause you know, on Sunday morning you could sleep in until you couldn't sleep anymore. And if you know anything about uh, staffs under pressure, if you give them one day a week to catch up on their sleep you, they can really go a little bit short uh, if they need to the rest of the week and uh, and you could I think I could see the staff actually the functioning increase um, the, uh, everyone's minds were rejuvenated and um, and i I think it really was 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 a great um, uh, evolution in uh, in in the calendar. So that was one thing I did, the, the battle rhythm in the calendar the, uh, the my function as a strategic confidant um, you know, making uh, or having, allowing this if something needed to be done um, encouraging the staff to take action, prodding them if necessary the other thing that, uh, the, the final thing is I really uh, served as a conduit on um, for the staff, because the staff understood I had General Petraeus's trust and confidence, a lot of times the senior staff—and we're talking two and three-star generals—would sure. um, would write me and say, "What is he thinking about this? What, it, what do you think, General Petraeus? You know, I'm trying to prepare something, a brief or a policy, and before I go into him, I, I want to have it, you know, as right as I can. What do you think he would think about this?" And I would write him back and give him my best shot at it. But the other thing I would do is um, is I would, in the email, I would blind carbon copy General Petraeus. Oh. And that would allow him, A, to see what I was telling them. And if it was wrong, he could weigh in. Uh, B, you know, he often did weigh in with additional guidance. He wouldn't have to then write everything. I I had written the, basically the, ba- the basics of what he wanted. And then he could maybe fine tune it
0: sure
2: um so that took workload off of him and he just loved that system (laughs) the other thing it did though is all this all the staff officers understood that when they wrote me and they got a reply back that they didn't know if general petraeus was on the other end or not (laughs) (laughs) and so it gave me um you know a great deal of authority which i was careful not to abuse
0: sure
2: um but um it's really it's a system i actually write about in surge uh, um you have to have a good relationship between a senior leader and his executive officer or assistant to make that work right. But in our case, I think it did. You know, it's
0: so interesting hearing that because it's very similar to the way I believe most organizations work. I mean, we look at and I say we, I think, I mean, people outside of kind of that place where you were. I mean, the military center of you know the United States as as a different uh, entity. And it is. But. I know in a lot of organizations you have, say, the CEO or the president or whatever it might be, and they have their one person who helps them with everything, even down to the, the, the BCC. I mean, I do that for the president of my company, and it's. It, I never understood why does he want me to draft all these things if he's just going to chop them up? But then I realized, oh, it's because his time you know, is so condensed that anything I can do to help it out. So it's just interesting to hear that being kind of played out in with you and general Petraeus, who, by the way, were you ever just terrified? I mean, that is, I feel like that is a terrifying person to have to answer to.
2: No. Um, I, you know, I found him, uh, a very refreshing leader to work for, you know, most Americans don't realize how open he was to discussion. And, um, Uh, he had an open email line of communication to anyone in multinational force Iraq. And sometimes sergeants would write him and say, sir, we got a problem up here. Chain of command doesn't understand it. You know, we're, there's corruption among the Iraqi security forces. You know, I'm not getting anywhere with my leadership. And, and, and General Petraeus would take action. You know, he'd send the note on to Ray Odierno and say, this, this doesn't sound right. sounds like this sergeant needs some help, Ray, you know, and, and he, was, uh, he wouldn't crush the people writing him. Now, if you engaged him, either uh, with email or, or face-to-face, you, you better have a good, uh, you know, your ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. He was He's very intelligent. And so he would come back really quickly and say, well, you know, what about this? What about this? This is where your argument is flawed. And if you really wanted to defend what you're, you were thinking, you had to be ready to do that. And uh, it didn't take long uh, for you to figure out that you had to operate at his speed and his level um, if you wanted to uh, succeed around him and the people that couldn't, well, those are the ones who say, Oh, he, you know, he was, I didn't like working for him and he was too hard or, Mm -hmm. you know, he was a workaholic or, you know, all the uh, things that you see, but the ones that could prosper under, under that kind of, Leadership, you know, they they thought the world of him, and I think we developed um, we assembled a staff of people like that. Uh, one of the articles in uh, Newsweek magazine in the era called us the Brainiac Brigade, <laughs> and you know, it was, I have to admit, it was true. General Petraeus put a premium on intelligence, so um, you know, if you worked for him, uh, you tended to have a, a PhD. Uh, he had a Rhodes Scholar working for him. Uh, the you could take the class ranks at West Point of the front office and, and add them together and they wouldn't reach 10 um, <laughs> wow. and so you know yes he, he he put a premium on intelligence but he also pre- put a premium on experience and what he wanted was that combination mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then, and then um, uh, so he wanted people who had Iraq experience or counterinsurgency experience he wanted people who were smart and could write and could think, um, but especially write, uh, because a staff at that level, you know, your written communications—that—that's your work. Uh, and then he wanted people who who weren't who were interested in more than just f- filling out their resume, fleshing out their resume, and leaving. And so we demanded at least twelve months of effort out of everyone we brought onto the staff. And unfortunately, I didn't get that out of everyone, but I got that out of most people.
0: Well, if you're talking the types of hours that you're working, I. <laughs> be a tough, uh, tough group to find. But I'll say, if there's ever a group that I want to be intelligent, hardworking, you know, uh, top of their class PhD, it is what you were doing. So I'm glad that intelligence is highly, highly sought after.
2: You know, Uh, we we were very cognizant of the fact that the United States was losing this war. mm -hmm. And we were going to do everything in our power to make sure that that didn't happen. And I think that's that gave us additional motivation to to put in the hours that were needed. And, you know, I think over time, we, we did things that uh, that sort of recharged our batteries, the, the three times a week PT sessions was one of them. The uh, one of those, by the way, was on a Tuesday afternoon. And I I implemented that in February, thinking he would stop it once the summer came. And he didn't uh, so we we were running at four in the afternoon in the teeth of an Iraqi summer. Oh wow! And uh, the hottest it ever got was 129 degrees.
1: Oh, only 129?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow! And and we were we you know literally we would carry two big uh, two liter bottles of water in each hand, and um, I would drink and pour them over me simultaneously, oh, you know, wow. alternate alternating drinking and pouring over my head, and by the end of the run they'd be empty and they're. You know, there was always a, a truck following us with more water. Wow. So we made sure that, you know, we weren't going to get uh, heat cr- heat cramps or heat exhaustion. But uh, it was, you know, I must say, everyone is pretty proud that they did participated in those runs. Though. Yeah. And, uh, and it did refresh the, the mind and the body. It was interesting that doing a tough physical workout can sort of clear the head. But it did. Sure. You know, he would have uh, monthly barbecues at his house on we'd come back early from the embassy annex, you know, the Republican palace in the green zone on Sunday. And, um, you know, and he'd have the cooks prepare a, a barbecue, you know, for the team. And, uh, you know, I would, you know, eat my hamburger and then go, uh, uh, shoot golf balls off the the back porch into the lake. <laughs> um, you know, people would send us old clubs and, and buckets full of old balls and, you know, I just sit there and, and I have a great photo of me hitting <laughs> the ball seven iron into uh, the lake by the Alfa Palace. Wow. But he would, do, he would do things like that that, you know, you could look forward to and, and kind of uh, help you recharge your batteries every now and then. And then there, there, there was the occasional trip as well. Three trips back to Washington, which changed things up. Uh, those were high stress events, however, given, uh, given the uh, congressional hearings that sure. we had to attend. Sure.
0: I can only imagine. Well, and I mean, you have been extremely gracious with your time. This is, I could talk to you for days. I mean, and I'm, you know, just looking forward to, as John said, continuing basically my internal conversation (laughs) by reading your book. Um, I wanted to end with one question that uh, we actually saw on, on Reddit that was asked and upvoted. And I think it's one that is so, it's just so important just to get people thinking about it. Um, And then to have your knowledge, what do you see as the biggest threat to America today, given all of the possible threats that we uh, have to deal with?
2: Uh, On Reddit, um, what I wrote, I truly believe it, that the biggest threat is the polarization of our domestic politics. America is a force for good in the world, and we can do great things, uh, provided we're a united people. But unfortunately, at present, it does not appear that we are. And I think our politics uh, is much to blame for that. We we have um, uh, we tend to elect uh, politicians who are on the extreme left or right of their parties. Uh, and part of that is the gerrymandering of our congressional districts. Uh, part of it is the sort of, uh, I would say, democratic nature of the Internet, where um People who have time to blog and so forth can uh, put forth arguments and you never really uh, get um, sort of the moderate voice injected into um, our politics and, and our media. And, um, and if not solved, uh, this, will, this is a cancer that will eat away at the United States. And, um, and if the United States is going to fail in the 21st century, it will fail from within I really don't see an external threat that we cannot handle. Um, terrorism we can handle. A rising ch- China I think we can accommodate and handle. There are there really isn't anything um, that rises to the level uh, of a real existential threat. You look at something like Iran for instance, you know, it's a it's a major regional concern, but it's not an existential threat to the United States. But the um but the collapse of the American uh, society from within, that is an existential threat. And so I really believe that what America needs to do is figure out a way to work from the center outward rather than work from the extremes inward. Because the extremes uh, tend not to be able to, um, to accommodate one another these days. And we've lost the ability uh, to cut political deals and to compromise. Um, and until we regain that, I think uh, things are going to continue to deteriorate, unfortunately, domestically, and that's a um, that's a paramount concern to me.
0: Well, again, that you know, it's a fantastic, I think, summation of one of the things that we face now, and and we need to unite behind. And Colonel mansour I, I really, again, thank you so much for your time. I know you're extremely busy. And thank you for putting this book out there and really trying to educate everyone on what you saw, given your experience in your history and your educational background. And so, again, the book is Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. I was wondering if there was anything else you wanted to let our listeners know about places you might write or keep up to date.
2: Um, you know, actually, I don't have a Twitter presence. Um, I I do uh, uh, a fair number of radio interviews and, and occasional TV interviews and and the um, and the occasional op-ed. So you'll see me out there in the media in due course. Uh, really appreciate uh, Smart People Podcast having me on today and and I really appreciate the give and take of the conversation.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, again, thank you so much and uh, best of luck in the future. And we appreciate it. And good luck with this book as well.
2: Yeah. Thank you. And remember, go Bucks. <laughs> That's right. All right.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Colonel Dr. Professor Peter Mansoor. He's got a lot of titles, which just goes to show the kind of caliber talent we get on Smart People Podcast. I'm sure many of you are sitting there going, wow, that was insightful what just happened. Many of you are saying, I didn't know that. And there's probably some of you going, oh, I wish you would have asked him this or questioned him on that or taken a side here. So I just want to say this is a perfect point to point out. You know, it's tough mid-interview if you want to try and take a really strong stance. That's one thing. Two, we have a limited amount of time with these people, and we really want to get the most of their knowledge out. Regardless of your own opinions, he has a wealth of knowledge. He is an extremely intelligent man, and we wanted to get his opinion out there, and the rest can be found in his book. But in general, I mean that was killer if you love that interview which i'm sure a lot of you did make sure to check out his book
1: again it's called surge my journey with general david petraeus and the remaking of the iraq war i mean it's awesome the interview was awesome so mathematical oh, processes they have to be both awesome right if you do happen to check out his book uh, order it through our site yeah order it through the amazon link at the top of smart
0: I Actually, I don't even say that because we make money because off a book we make like five cents. It's more so because we like to be able to show them that, hey, our audience is interested in what you put out there. Additionally, actually, he doesn't use Twitter. I was going to say you could tweet. You could tweet in general and just say, we just like to show our guests who give us their time for free that we're all digging what they're putting out there. Yeah, if you enjoyed the
1: episode, tweet a link to the episode and put us in there at smart people pod or put whatever hashtag you want so we can kind of follow it. But it would be cool to be able to email him after a week and then a month and say, Hey, here's the type of response we're getting to your
0: interview. Yeah. But in general, just keep listening, keep enjoying, keep reaching out to us. That's all we want you to do. Learn and tell others what you've learned. That's what we set out for in the first place. And three years later, here we are. Yeah. Some might even say thrive. See you guys Uh next week.